welcome back everyone to the finding path stream for the art of game mastery where we talk about all things pathfinder 2e um last week we did a high level review of guns and gears um and we mentioned we were going to do some um like pre-recorded videos offline and get them uploaded for some deep dives on the guns and gears i've been incredibly busy this week and um i did not get a chance to do those with jack so my apologies on that. Hopefully we get those out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I also did not get a chance to do the um, the YouTube live test stream that I talked about. So hopefully these next couple of weeks, I'll be able to get some more free time and get those things out of the way. Um, we also do have the copy for both the um, ancestry ancestral deity, or I guess, not really a deity. The ancestor, the uh, what do you what do you call it, Jack? What do you, what do you refer to your article as? Um, yeah, the uh, ancestral deity option, giving okay. you the option to not have a like living, breathing patron, but more of a an alternative lifestyle. Right. So we got the copy of that done. It just needs uploaded to the website and the cover image set and all that jazz. Um, we also got a first draft and a first review. Uh, internal review of the companion rules um, for the follower companions that I mentioned, the humanoid companions, whatever you want to call them. Uh, so those will be going up hopefully this week as well. Um, excited for both of those to get everyone's feedback and opinions on them. Um, don't forget if you're watching this as a VOD video on demand that you like and subscribe and all that jazz. Uh, comment, especially comments are really big for us. Um, to get that alg algorithm pointing in our direction, that'd be awesome if you all could do that. Uh, and I know I love how you guys have been, um, you know, uh, posting in the chat and everything on Twitch as well. That's been awesome. Get some engagement going. Um, Jack is going to be primarily leading this one because I'm not feeling very well today. And my mind is super foggy and just not very great right now. Um, so they are going to be primarily leading it. I'm going to be interjecting when I get, you know, when I have something to add and whatnot. Um, but today's topic is troubling plots, or sorry, troubling settings, hooks, and plots. Um, we're going to be talking about, you know, how how you can engage your players with interesting quests and storylines and how to best craft those from a storyteller's perspective and all the things that go around that. Mechanics even are going to be thrown around in there, I'm sure. So should be a pretty heavy one. A lot of, lot of, lot of detail, a lot of density. Um, so yeah, Jack, you want to kick things off? I do. Start off with D&D uh, &D Dad, we thank you for being a companion follower. Yes, awesome. We appreciate it. And we appreciate the uh, the role you play in Shifting Sands as well. By the way, if you are interested in playing West Marches, we are looking for more players so we can get games going more often. So if you have uh, any interest in that kind of thing, be sure to hit us up and wide you in, get you going. Um, and then, as, as usual, if you are in our server, hit us up. We are always funding games and we're also kind of punting games because we find a lot of gms who are looking for players find a lot of players who are looking for gms so we'd really like to help you guys connect so use our discord for that that's what it's there for by the way um, D, D dad before we get going really into this how's our audio sounding pretty good no no hiccups or anything i'm gonna take the silence as a as a, a good so jack no, you want to we're completely no we're muted okay so <laughs> good clear good okay. okay perfect uh john what's the first topic is it uh troubling settings 
Um, I don't remember how I, what order I entered it in, so just go with whatever uh, you feel you feel best. I think okay, it's settings, hooks, and plots is what I did. Troubling settings, hooks, and plots. Okay, so I'm gonna start off. I'll just go through them in order the way that the titles list it, so it'll be easier for continuity for us. So troubling settings takes us off with when you are planning a campaign, you are the game master. It's up to you to find a setting that's going to be engaging for your players, which is why we suggest troubling settings. If you have a peaceful time and there's nothing going on in your setting, it might fall extremely flat. So the goal is to find what is wrong with your society. A lot of GMs, we like to fall into this trap where we're designing the history of what happened. We design a tower. We decide who built that tower. We decide like, you know, what went into all of that. And while all that's great for world building, if there's nothing going wrong with that tower or that, you know, wizard who built that tower, if there's nothing troubling in the area, then it's just another piece in uh, in your world, and you're just world building. And that's not going to be something for your players to engage with. So when you're designing those things, don't fall into that trap of, I want to design this, you know, really interesting inn. Focus on what's going wrong with the inn. Are they getting all of the, you know, necessary things to run their inn? All the trade routes, okay. You know, are there patrons in the nearby area who are struggling with revenue, or are they struggling with, you know, something going wrong in the area. So while it's fun to be building the building itself and working on the world building, the first part we want to talk about for troubling settings is what's going wrong. Yeah, I do I do want to interject here as well and say that um, while it is the GM's role to come up with the setting you're playing in, don't forget to talk to your uh, players as well in your session zero or whatever to make sure that everyone's on board with that setting. Um, one of the things Jack did when we started Tagaseya is he actually presented us a number of different settings and said, hey, which one of this sounds the most interesting to you? Um, and then once we kind of, as players, we agreed on it, they went with, you know, that one and kind of rolled with it. Um, and that was a really good way of handling it because it gets the players engaged in the world uh, more so than if it was just a, a random setting that you come up with without, without talking to your players ahead of time. Um, and I think that it'll make the players more engaged with the whole game going forward as well. Um, so don't use that as a benchmark because that is really hard to do from what I understand from other people. I had 10 different settings planned and ready to go for entire campaigns. But, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, so... I just have, you know, campaigns in my back pocket. If you're starting out as a GM, don't feel like you need to have a bunch of, you know, different campaigns for your players to choose from. Well, I don't, I don't think you necessarily need to have them fleshed out, but maybe at least have some ideas to present to your players to make yeah. sure everyone's on board. It, it can be it can be a lot of work coming up with, mm -hmm. you know, 10 campaigns the way I had set out and I'm constantly making new ones. That can be a lot of work to come up yeah. with that. So, um Sometimes it's a lot easier to just have your players build it for you. Yeah. Um, the best enemies that I ever made were the ones that the players created. The best, best plot hooks I ever made were, were helped created by the players. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, you know, the old advice, uh, you know, old, old wise advice that only only plan your 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 games a few sessions ahead kind of deal uh because then you then you get the chance to react to how the players do what they what they seem most interested in at the time and then you can kind of take those things they're interested in and either turn them into quests or turn them into plot lines or anything like that like you can really see what the players are really interested in engaging with 
and then maybe it's something you didn't originally expect to be a, a big deal but maybe there's an npc that the players just absolutely love and all of a sudden you you think oh maybe i should turn this particular character into a larger part of the story that i didn't really anticipate so there's a lot of uh inspiration and such you can get from just watching your players interact with your setting in your world which i think is a uh, a really good thing because that means they're engaged for one and it means that you have to work not quite as hard as a gm to find stuff to engage them yeah the um the the different processes between coming up with your own campaigns and letting your players kind of help them the adopted a taxidermist you know I... my players like to adopt people too and i think it's one of the most flattering parts of running a campaign when you say adopt a taxidermist dnd dad do you mean um they brought him on as like a party member or like a like a follower or do you mean like one of the it, the characters like made them part of their family like the literal word of adoption curious that sounds very interesting <laughs> especially a taxidermist yeah i mean very specific group, we had like a nice yeah, the follower, follower. we had a uh what did we start off with? We had Jace. They were a uh, uh, like wizard. A wizard. wizard apprentice. Wizard in yeah, an apprentice. And the players started off. I don't really think they liked them. And then one of my players got attached to the NPC, and before he knew it, they were a full fledged follower. There was no. There was no going back. D and D dad then, said that that particular taxidermist was adopted in a floating city. Um, I wish more campaign settings took advantage of floating cities. I think they're a really cool idea that similar to the whole steampunk or skypunk, which often involves floating cities as well. Um, it's a underutilized co uh, concept. And I think that, you know, with, with high fantasy becoming as stagnant as it is in here in the West, I think that the East are doing a lot more interesting things with it. But out here in the West, the high, high fantasy has become pretty stagnant, in my opinion. We have these, like handful of generally accepted genres for lack of a better word um and then we have these like few ideas that go with each of those and basically every setting in those genres just replicates the same ideas and i think something like a floating city floating city is something very interesting that we don't see very often here in the west and i would like to see us tackle that a bit more so. we used to so much back in the early days of gaming i know like the biggest appeal to me to want to play Final Fantasy One was right there in the box art cover of Floating City. But you, you just made my point right there. The Final Fantasy, for instance, is an Eastern game where floating cities are very popular. Out here in the West, we don't we don't typically see them in our Western produced stuff, right? Like if you think of like the Western RPGs, we don't see floating cities very often. You're um, absolutely right. Western, no, not yeah. existent, not really. But I think that's what attracts me so much to each eastern rpgs is that they have these refreshing ideas that we don't see that often over here just i'm sure i'm sure the opposite can be said in the east too i'm sure the east are tired of shit of floating cities and they're like oh i want something different so they look at our stuff in the west and say hey i'll play the witcher or skyrim or something but you know no. um so uh that's the first point that i wanted to cover about troubling settings was talking to your players finding out what they're interested in, and then also uh, having uh, like a feedback system for your settings. And the troubling settings, the best way to get your, your players engaged is to make it personal. 
that is the like the next step, mm -hmm. the next tier up. So when you're designing something, you kind of want to see what catches. You're kind of throwing out a bunch of different lures, and you're trying to find out because every time you sit down at a table, you might be playing with new people. If you're playing with close friends, you might learn kind of what their preferences are. Your game is probably going to shape towards and mold towards just a little bit towards what they like. It, you can run your own game, and it can be your story. Uh, if your players like that, power to you. If they leave, then you should probably write a book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier where you know, I mentioned, you know, definitely find things that hook your players, uh, no pun intended, and, um, you know, go with those things. Even if they weren't originally the um, primary focus you had intended, oftentimes it's better to pivot and go with what the players really like than it is to steadfastly stick to what you had planned. Um, and, and a good GM will be able to mold those two things, right? They'll be able to take what they had already planned, take what the players are going for, and then kind of adapt what they already had planned to what they, what the players actually like. Um, and I think that's one of the most important skills a GM can develop in their, their career, so to speak, as a GM. Um, yeah. So after you get kind of a, a feedback about which one of your settings that is troubling is kind of, you know, grab the attention of your players, you got to make it personal. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I set up from previous game was the setting was that there was a little girl who had to make a choice about whether she was going to pursue uh, primal magic or occult magic. Um, and I, you don't give away all the information, you know, you kind of well, I kind of dropped the ball on this quest. I know exactly what quest you're talking about. I dropped the ball on it because I left the game temporarily, like right after accepting this quest. This is the first time I got really, when I had a lot going on at work and I had to drop out of the game for a bit. But I did it like right after accepting this quest. So like, I kind of just threw it in the party member's lap. It's like, here you go, deal with it. That was what, I mean, it had such a great outcome. Yeah. it. I mean, it ended up producing one of, a really good villain in your in your game and it's one that we're still dealing with today like what two years later and has become you gotta, you gotta, you gotta lead them out so yeah. you, you start off with a simple quest and it's troubling enough to like somebody uh, in the party identified with not knowing what kind of spell you know tradition that they wanted to use mm -hmm. and so that one of the party members was using occult magic and they felt snubbed by the primal magic users so they felt inclined to lead that person towards the occult spellcasters so the player just needed to make a decision, and they made a personal one, and I had created investment. I, you don't always know right away if you're getting investment. It's kind of the feedback you're going to have to like slowly kind of drag out over time. But I found more and more characters where players were invested in this follower because they, they were raising this follower up to do additional roles in combat or outside of combat. They really genuinely cared about what was happening to this person. So once you... Um, you get that feedback system, you can start making, okay, so I had the troubling plot was, you know, what to teach this uh, young apprentice, what kind of magic. And then from there, I get the feedback, I got to make it personal. So the person in their group decides they want to become a hag. And the party members feel it personally when they are suddenly betrayed. Now, betrayal isn't always the only way to go about these things. But in order to make it personal, um, another player during that same scenario where being betrayed, rescued another NPC who needed help. So they were in a troubling situation, and the player giving me feedback said, hey, I want to help rescue this person. And afterwards, they were like, um, I feel like this person and 
connection. So I want to pursue this angle, you know, give me more information about this NPC. And all of the players involved in this situation, it kind of grows from there. Once you get them involved, it feels like your world is more real. And then they're going to start making more decisions that are based on the reality of this game. Instead of just, I'm going to roll these dice and I want to go do combat, or I just want to have, you know, this social interaction and go with this. They start feeling like it's real and it becomes personal to them. Yeah, I, one point you made at the very beginning there that I really want to touch on too is that um, you mentioned that, you know, you're not always going to, it's not always going to be obvious what, what the players are engaged with or interested in. You kind of just have to feel it out. Um, that is a sense you will develop with experience. Like, whether you try or not, it's just something that's going to happen. Um, it's going to take time, and you're not going to be very good at it at the beginning. And that's okay, though, because, I mean, usually when you're a new GM, there's a lot of skills that go into GMing that you're you're not going to be very good at. But that's all right, because, you know, you're learning, and typically your players, I mean, I hope you're playing with empathetic people who understand that you're a new GM, and you're, you're learning, and they're probably still going to have fun. I mean... Just because you're not experienced GM doesn't mean your players aren't going to have a blast playing your games. I mean, they're they're usually friends, right? That you get they just enjoy getting around the table together with you and playing. Like you know, it's not always about uh, being. Let's see, how should I put this? It's not even about being like the the perfect storytelling element, right? Oftentimes, when you sit down to play a game with your friends, they're just there to have fun and shoot the crap, right? They don't necessarily care that you are a good or a bad gm they're just having fun enjoying your company but as you continue to play you're going to gain these skills that will just naturally make you a better gm as you go forward and one of those skills is sensing out what your characters are liking what they're not liking and then also being able to adapt what you have planned based on that outcome um, so don't feel discouraged you know at first when you're you know you present something to your players and they don't react they obviously don't react well to it. That doesn't mean you failed as a GM. It just means that, you know, you have something to learn from it and, you know, add to future games you play. Um, I don't know of any party who is going to, or even one, even player for that matter, who is just going to say, that's it, I'm out, because you screwed up one time and didn't do something. Like, if they do that, they probably don't belong in your party anyway. Just let them leave and don't talk to them again. <laughs> they'll, they'll be back. They'll yeah. be back once they can't find a group. Mm-hmm. Um, so. so at the at the end of it is and here's where so you set up that troubling situation you get the feedback you make it personal and then you need a resolution and um right some people do not care about the lore yeah so and, just uh, to, for context for those listening and don't see the screen the dad the indeed dad said some don't care about the lore but npc and world investment prevents murder hobo which is 100 percent true um even if they don't necessarily care about the world you presented having that information there can act as a deterrent to that kind of stuff because if they know the information's there whether they care or not they might feel that perhaps someone else in my party cares about it so i don't want to make a decision that will just you know ruin the game for everyone else assuming you have a generally someone who is okay with social interactions and not just completely socially awkward or inept for that matter um, which does happen mind you there are people like that um but I think in general case, Deity Dad is right, is that even if your part, even if one of your players or even all your players in your party is are not super cool, you're not super into the lore aspect of it, 
having it available is still a good thing because it does prevent a lot of table antics, I think. Right. So for the resolution, you need to decide where this is going once you have their attention. Um, where it's going is, is it resolved? Um, does the person now, you know, going to be on your side? Are they going to join you? Or are they going to, you know, have a new quest available? You can't, you don't want to string them along indefinitely. Instead, you want to have some kind of idea of where you're going. So you flesh it out as you go. You make some leads, you see what your players like. Once they've grabbed onto those leads, you make those leads personal. And then once they're very invested, you've got to decide and talk to either your player for feedback or if you're gunning for the surprise, if that's part of your game, it's not necessary. It's not always required. You got to decide between either you yourself or with your players, where is this going to go? Does this come to a conclusion? Do the par players part ways? Or, you know, um, is this person just going to be there to introduce the big bad by being, you know, the, I want to say the heiress in the, or Aerith in the situation? You know, nothing motivates the players more when somebody is, uh, you know, brutally slain in front of them. Or taken away from them in general. Right. So uh, if the princess gets kidnapped, now you're going to be motivated to go rescue them. Especially if you are attached to the princess beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, a while back I did a GM Basics video uh, in that, that series on YouTube of uh, shorts. And one of the videos I did was on uh, preparing for a campaign, I believe it was called. Um, and in that video, I mentioned that it's often be that it's, it's often behooves you to develop the major plot beats up front and the major end goal, like who the big bad is, why that big bad is the big bad, um, but also the major plot beats in between. But then everything in between those plot beats, you should plan maybe one or two sessions ahead, but then use, like Jack says, use the interactions that your players make to influence the direction that story goes. So instead of trying to build the story completely as the players go, have the overall goalposts there and then kind of guide the story to those goalposts based on what the players do like and etc um and adjust your goals as needed yeah definitely be flexible as well so i you know i was gonna point touch a point on this see if we had time but the thing that i find that prevents murder hoboism the most is don't reward experience for killing villagers mm -hmm. that is yes. uh that is one of my simple caveats to that like okay cool how much experience is that worth nothing see if you do that again yeah. um so moving on to hooks hooks is what you're going to do to get your uh, characters interested and sometimes you make 10 quests in a new town or an area and it seems like your players aren't interested in anything switching to milestone we uh we actually want to do a video or a, a stream or a video or something on this. Uh, we talked about it the other day. Um, there are pros and cons to both EXP and milestone leveling, um, and I think both are useful in different different types of games. Um, and we, uh, we yeah we definitely agree there. Milestone leveling can be really good at solving these kind of problems. Um, so especially we definitely want to do a video players. on it and especially for new players yeah. who are kind of coming to grips of like what they're supposed to do and uh, some people's play style from video game coming into tabletops is you know if i can't solve the quest then you know mm -hmm. the quest is to sneak up and steal something well you know you can also just in the video game you can just murder them and yeah. take it off their court and some some people have that approach to solving problems 
in tabletop RPG, you know, we talked about empathy earlier. It's going to kind of open up your your mind and your avenues to the different possibilities how you can complete these quests. Right. And so you make a bunch of quests and you got to make your quest sound interesting. So the problem is is that your quest is interesting. I don't want to say that the quest that you design is bad. The goal isn't necessarily that your quest is good or bad. The goal here is to find a way to hook your players into that quest. So you want to throw out your hooks. It's the same the it's the same kind of concept if you're writing a book, right? You mm -hmm. you want your players to be hooked on the story you're about to tell or the scene you're about to tell rather in the book or the movie or whatever form of entertainment media you want to use as an example here um, you need something to hook their interest and get them engaged with whatever you're about to put on their lap so here's how we deliver really cool hooks one of the things that has worked really well for me depending on the group but on the last couple of groups that i've had the fastest way i've gotten to get people to be interested is to have a monster board there is something about having a group of adventurers who go around hunting monsters it just appeals to people it is like the the loosest example that i can give for advice on how to improve your hooks has a have a designated place for your players to find quests that way if you have people at the table who are like well where's the quests i want to know where these quests are those people the, the answer is right there you tell them hey you go to this tavern this is where the quest board is yeah there, I, I think this works best in sandbox games uh, this is where those really shine <laughs> Um, if you're playing a, if you're playing playing an epic epic adventure game like some like if you're you know kind of like Lord of the Rings or something, hunt boards or quest boards or whatever probably well honestly probably they might not be as interesting to the players as they would. But in a sandbox game, um, or as I'm finding, I'm actually planning on introducing one of these to my West Marches game to get some more hooks for the players as well, um, which is. West Marches, let's be real, it's it's pretty much a sandbox in the, at the end of the day. Um, but the uh, they're really good at giving players, especially players who are not the most decisive people um, and aren't good at going out and directing themselves, it gives them an easy out to say like, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now, so let's just go to this quest board. There's bound to be something there, right? You know, something for us to do. And then through those quests on the quest board, you can kind of hook them into other more interesting quests. So um, this is something where MMOs and RPGs, I think, fail to use. A lot of MMOs and single-player RPGs, they have the concept of a, a quest board or whatnot. Um, and they're there, and they're whatever. They're fun to grind out EXP. But I think that as from a game design perspective, something that's often lacking from that quote-unquote feature in a game uh, is that they don't use those those little quests they you know from the board to then expand the lore or expand the you know the other let players find other quests that they might not even have access to without going through this hunt board kind of deal um, and i've always found it weird that that's never been done and and at least i got back and think of in rpgs that utilize this kind of idea um, it is pretty rare. I've I've only seen it done a few times in mediums, and uh, you hit on one of my key points. Like <laughs> you're on the same page with me. Um, I was going to bring up one of the things that I do for quests. If their players are not actively looking for quests, if you don't have either veteran players or people who are coming from MMOs who are looking for quest boards, you have you know depending on your crowd, you got to meet those needs. I wait and for a player to have an inter interaction 
with a character. Uh, John, you do this a lot in my games, where you find the the guy who sells the most shadiest of materials. You know, you're looking for the fence. Mm-hmm. You know, you wanna you wanna hawk all that all that loot that you found, and then you become invested in that seller, that NPC, mm-hmm. because you're like, okay, I came back from another mission and I talked to this person, and I come back from this mission and I talked to that person. You're building a friendship with that person. So when I have a quest that the players haven't kind of delved into or not found interesting, that person is going to be like, oh, hey, uh, I also have this going on. You know, maybe you could help me out. And, oh, look, I've already got your interest because you have a good relationship with this person. It's almost like the person's real and they're asking for an actual favor. And so for for getting a good hook, get your players invested in that NPC that they go to. And it's not always going to be... Wait, what did he say? D&D Dad said, good fences make good neighbors. I'm watching, the, I'm watching the chat, so whenever I was gonna, I was gonna bring it up whenever you had a no, had an interrupt in your in your um your by, talk by there, the but... yards. That is that is hilarious. Yeah, I that's a good that. that's a good pun. I like it. <laughs> Leave it to D and D Dad for the puns. Right oh yeah, that's a that's a great post right there. Um, so I in previous games it was the identifier. Um, I. I came up with this idea a long time ago. It must have been from Diablo. I know video game osmosis, but there's other other games I've played where you need to identify gear. Fantasy Star Online, you know, uh, affected my my thought process on how to handle that. And players often kind of want to just be like, I have this spell, or I just want to search it and identify it. And I'm like, no, actually, I think you should take that to somebody and talk to them and find out, you know, like that should be their main job. And I have always used that in my games. I play a lot of sandbox games, so... This may or may not work for your game if you're not playing a sandbox. Yeah. They need to go to the town um, identifier, the magic guy, the wizard, the guy who's going to go, okay, I can tell you what this piece of loot that you found, what it does. And it gives a chance every time the players come back, a chance for some role play. Because then that person can be like, hey, this loot came from this area. Like, so I see you've been handling this, you know? You You can help build that feedback between your players. So your players can be like, I want to talk about what I did. I want to brag about the thing I just killed. This guy's asking me where I got this loot from. They're giving me a free invitation to kind of talk about that. And so uh, for that person to kind of build that rapport with, that person is eventually going to be like, hey, well, if you did this already, then you might be interested in this. It's the same concept that I use with the fence with the identify or the the mage in the town. Yeah. Um, At the same time, though, you don't want to punish players for taking the identify spell because it is in the game. So, but... One of the really cool things about what Jack just described is that, excuse me, it also gives you a chance to uh, divulge lore to players. Um, you know, the identify spell is pretty, I hate to use the word mechanical, um, but it is, it's mechanical, right? Like, you don't get any extra lore out of it. You just get, hey, what does this do? What is what's the save on it and all that stuff right it's boring boring. but um i i at the same time i don't want to um punish players for using it but what you but if you make your identify npc divulge more information than you would get from the identify spell then it becomes worthwhile and also not everyone typically takes that in this in fact i find that if you make it known early on that there are npcs who kind of specialize in this then it kind of most players end up not taking it anyway because they're like, what's the point of wasting a spell slot on a spell? I can just pay someone a few gold to do anyway and get more information. Um, and then that gives them room, opens up room for them to take more interesting spells, right? So, um, like, in the Shifting Sands game, 
What was that? The spell's not available. I let my players know up front, you know, the yeah. spell's not available. And I, I swear it goes over everyone's heads. I've had yeah. a lot of people where I've been like, hey, remember that message where I told you specifically? Like, yeah. that's not going to be... That's why I typically try to avoid ruling out raw stuff when I can because it, it ends up always someone forgets and then they just don't think to ask before taking it or something. And, and you just you just let... You, instead of punishing them, you just say, go ahead and swap that spell out yeah. for something better. But um, what I was going to say is in uh, the Shifting Sands game, I have that NPC, Orlin, who his, his really role in that entire game was just to be a lore master. Like, yeah, he can identify spells if you want, or uh, identify items and whatnot if you want to, but he's really there to seek out more information about the world. Um, I, relics and things like that play a heavy part in my games, so I want to make sure that players have a way, if they miss anything and or don't catch on to anything that I try to, you know in the dungeons or whatever themselves where they find the relics, then they have a way to go back and say, Hey, what is this thing? And why does it exist? And where does it come from? And Orlin is the place where you would go to do that in, in my particular game. Um, from another, from a, like, uh, from an in-game perspective, Orlin is like the go-to person. I noticed a lot of other players wanted to talk to them. Mm -hmm. You, you had a, you know, you had a style for talking or speaking as you were for Orlin and the players just, fed off of it and they just wanted to keep asking yeah. you questions and then we almost never left yeah and uh yeah. actually you guys actually yeah. took his tower like took went along with his tower to travel fast travel which was actually a clever idea i never thought of that but fast traveling tower I, yeah. we absolutely i think we all loved it yeah that was and then we got attacked by sky pirates yeah. i mean those are those are and perfect died. examples of how you got us hooked right into the quest yeah we were we were hooked all you had to do is you know that person I do want to. I do want to say too that it doesn't need to be one NPC, right? Um, for instance, uh, oh, what? Now nah, my his name's blanking me. I thought my head now. The uh, blacksmith in Shifting Sands as well. Um, his name was originally going to be Boldo, but I changed it, and I can't remember what I changed it to. Um, but anyway, uh, one of our players is play is play testing the inventor class, so you know he makes a lot of use out of crafting. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, they, in a recent excursion, they, they picked up a number of old ores and, and ingots from one of the dungeons that was delved. Uh, and they came back and wanted more information on this. And while they're in there, they were asking, hey, what can I make out of this? You know, uh, what, what, and then they're like, you had the, I remember it was you or Timlin who had the, um, the Urukog at the time. But you, you said, hey, you know, by the way, we found this crazy sword. And like, oh, well, I, it's obviously made out of fine material that is extremely difficult to craft with. I don't know much about it, but go to Orlin. He probably has more information. So, like, all of your NPCs have knowledge about what they, you know, are experts in. And you can kind yeah, of mix and, like, yeah. use them to re relay some information and then send them over almost get more information. You can make it a kind of a, a puzzle to, to find all the pieces and that place is, it together. You are, you are tying it in perfectly with <laughs> I don't know how you're on you're on my wavelength right now. Uh, Apparently, which is rumors. So we talked about all the different ways you get the hooks. Quest board, make friends with your NPCs and gossip. Yes. I, I'm the rogue's favorite one. I, I I usually have one player at every table who goes, I want to go into an inn and I want to find out what the gossip is. I almost always get one player like that in every group, and so be ready for that as a GM. Expect it. You're gonna have players who are gonna be like, What's the latest news? What's the latest gossip? Because that's going to help, and it, it doesn't have to evolve into a quest right away. It's just something you can put in the back of their mind. Say they're going on a quest right now, just a simple, you know, a delve or a mine, 
and they're going to go on that simple quest. But before they leave, you fill in that hook, that little juicy tidbit of gossip that, oh, the king is sick or, you know, th there's bandits on the road. Mm -hmm. Simple things that you kind of help fill in, you know, um, a person is looking for something. I, I love having those in there. That way, when the players are in said dungeon, as they go in there, they'll be like, hmm, back in my mind, somebody said they were looking for something. And then they see it and they go, ooh, they are so much more invested in your game now because they remembered what you said. They're paying attention to it in the game. And now they're going to be paying attention to the stuff that you add in there. <laughs> DD Death said Q Adele's rumor has it. Rumor oh. has it. Um, do you remember the in-person game we short or actually i think it was both of our first pathfinder 2 game we played um at gamecraft brewery before i left southern california unfortunately we only got a few sessions in before i left and one of these days i should probably if i get more time and for more free time i should probably revive that as a virtual game um but on the very first session of that game um you you know you, you all were in a tavern and you were uh starting the initial quest for the main scenario um, but one of the characters, I believe it was the goblin, the goblin rogue, I, I believe it was Leo's character, um, was looking for rumors. And uh, he was, you know, kind of skulking around the place and yada yada. And he noticed there was a table of burly adventurers who were just, you know, chatting amongst themselves. And, and he, he overheard some of their conversation about a particular dungeon that was off in the distance. Um, and mm -hmm. that a number of highly skilled adventurers were dying one after the other, but it was the ones that were making it back were making it back with a lot of loot. So I made it a very, very clear that this is a very high level dungeon, but it's a very lucrative one. Um, but I kind of like seeded that at the beginning and like you, you all correctly realize that this is beyond our means right now. Um, but I think uh, from the way you, you all reacted that it, it planted something in your head, something to look forward to. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a rumor that wasn't immediately actable. Like it was something that was in the world and they probably would have, wouldn't have heard about or found very easily otherwise. Um, and it's not, not something they could have accomplished, done anything about right now, but it's something that is probably going to would, would stick in their mind for a while and say, Hey, I wonder if we're high enough level now to tackle that thing. Hmm. Maybe we should try just, it. You just bury the lead. Just yeah. Light it up. And then we have to go searching for it. So, so the, the point I'm trying to make is not all your rumors that you present have to be something that the players can do anything about right now. In fact, mm -hmm. sometimes the best rumors are ones that are more mysterious and something they're not sure they can do anything about right now. So that's that's some genius work right there. So we covered, I think we covered hooks. Um, gonna switch over into plots. Yeah, we do have uh, just just a. I don't know if you're keeping track of time, but we do have about 15 minutes left in the stream. So, awesome. I uh, I think we uh, we might have to cut plots short. That's okay. Or we can go over. I don't. I mean, I don't mind that either too. If uh, we did talk about last time, maybe just you know forgoing the one hour thing we talked about. So mm -hmm. we'll see. See what we get. So plots is such such a huge topic to cover, and what we're talking about for plots right now is what kind of plot are you going to deliver to your players? So we talked earlier about feedback from your players about the initial part of the campaign. You're trying to find the right plot for your group. What's going to keep everyone interested? And there is a lot of different types of plots. Sometimes we work really stressful jobs, and we are really tired, and when we get together with our friends, you know what kind of plot we want? Go out and kill we stuff. Want to, <laughs> we want to roll some dice and kill some goblins. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm sorry, but 
our plot is we, we that's what we need right yeah. now sometimes you know you gotta talk to your party you gotta talk to your players and be like hey you know keep in mind too you know your, your game is gonna have multiple plots throughout as long as you're gonna have the main plot that might be multiple plots in itself you you'll probably have multiple quests that like side quests that are gonna each gonna have their own plots you're gonna have character arcs that might have their own plots you're gonna have even even the the hunt board you know the, where you just go out and slay this particular monster is technically it's a plot within itself so right those side quests so the plot is going to come down to what it is that your players are looking for. There are a lot of tabletop RPGs out there. I know we mainly cover Pathfinder, but some of them involve other things that people in a social setting might be comfortable and might not be comfortable with. Some people's plots are looking for it's a little bit of romance. Some people are looking for um, kind of that superhero or uh, basically level 1 to level 20 kind of hero mentality where they want to go and save the day and they want that clear defined goal at the end. Your players are going to tell you like when you sit down at the table and you say like what is it that you guys are looking for in a game? The last time I sat down and said that, first thing out of somebody's mouth was I want dragons. I said I don't care what we do, I want there to be a dragon. And I gave them a dragon. Beamer's Beamer's RQ said if you add more wood to the board the plot thickens. I love that pun. That's great. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. That was that was clever. Did you make that up Beamer's or did you did you take that from somewhere? Oh, that's that's yeah, I love that. Um, God, so I the other plots that are available is some people are gonna want a good mystery. Uh, people don't always know they want a good mystery. <laughs> I really recommend you throwing a mystery into your mix. Yeah, um, I mean a good a good game's gonna have plots of different of a variety of different kind of plots, right? Uh, like mm -hmm. you said, some days you might just want to kill goblins. Some days you might want to save the world, etc. One of the one of the strengths of Pathfinder 2e, or these are D and D games in general, um, is that they they do well for they're they're well fit for different kinds of plots. Um, they are not well fit for different kinds of games. They are very much targeted toward a specific kind of game. But within the within those constraints, uh, you have quite a bit of freedom in the types of stories you tell there so right so of all the available plots a lot of the most common ones these days that i've noticed trends over time is intrigue i think a lot of people started watching game of thrones and uh, i think intrigue kind of came to the forefront and people started requesting more of that in their tabletops I'm really happy that there is more diversity to just dungeons and dragons no offense yeah. and dragons is a great game um don't misappropriate the dragons. <laughs> I, if every game is going to have a dungeon and every game might have a dragon, there's, you know, it's it's part part for the course. But some people want intrigue with their dragons and dungeons. So be ready to develop you as a person. It's time to learn. There's a lot of different genres, a lot of plots available, and you can kind of start with small mini arcs and then make overarching arches, basically. <laughs> I will say that uh, different kinds of plots are have different degrees of difficulty uh, in designing and preparation. Intrigue plots are actually really, like, compa relatively compared to other types of plots, intrigue plots are really hard to build well and also to run as a GM, especially for e easier GM or uh, less experienced GMs. Um, they're typically fairly complex and they're like they divide, they require a lot of intricate, intricately woven beats. Um, the characters are need to be really interesting to be they're keep engaging. 
Um, and it's often hard for new GMs to play those characters because, you know, they have to basically roleplay to level higher than a lot of new GMs are comfortable at. Um, not that you can't do it as a new GM. I'm just saying that they are harder to do than, like, a typical slaying goblin plot or... Well done. Uh, Let's see uh, see if the chat wants to tell us what kind of plots they want us to cover. Yeah, what kind of, yeah, what kind of plots would you like to see covered in other videos and... Well, right now, because we've got... Oh, right you know, now, okay. We've sure. We've got time right now. So let's see if, uh, if, if there's ten a particular minutes. plot you guys want us to go over. What we would do, John and I, pick our brains about how we would come up with how to add that right into our campaign. So, like, typically, like, say, John, you like to run Dungeon Crawl. Um, those are my favorite types. I absolutely love going into the dungeon and going back out to town. I'm running a sandbox right now, and I'm running heavy on the Intrigue. I would like and, to do a, a video at some point, probably not a stream, but a, a pre-recorded video with, with my experiences running West Marches so far, given that it's my first time doing it this way um, and what I've learned along the way so far. West March sounds, uh, sounds like a pretty easy, and you know, I would even consider West March almost like its own plot since it's really, it know, can be. Yeah. So, um, why don't we, why don't we start with an intrigue plot? So how would you run an intrigue plot? Since, uh, I mean, like I just mentioned, it's one of the most complicated ones. How would you go about going at that? All right. So um, what I've learned from reading a lot of different fantasy books in my youth is that you want to have diverse factions. And one of the things you're going to do is you're going to want to start small and you're going to help start small with a uh, light workload of just make a few different houses, make a few different factions. You want to find out what all these factions have in common and what do they differ. And if you just start off with just like one, you know, uh, I'm used to pen and paper because I'm old school. Start off with one, you know, nine by 12 and you kind of space that paper out and you do how many factions do you feel like are going to be appropriate for your setting? Um, take Tagusia, for example. That one, I started off, I wanted to really flesh out my fake courts. That's why I came up with the different seasonal courts. And the first thing I did was, okay, I have these four different you know, season-based courts. So if you're going to make these different factions, you're going to want to start off deciding what do each faction represent. Um, that was the easiest thing for me since each season has its own, you know, built-in representation. Yeah, real quick, D&D Dad said, West March is tricky to keep it episodic, but still build lore. 100% true. Uh, totally agree with that. Um I will will probably elaborate on that point. Uh, I'm actually going to take mm -hmm. note of that and elaborate that on a future the future video we do on it because I think uh, that's a very very good point that they make. Um, and um, I mean, your lore is top notch. There's a uh, nothing like finding lore hidden secrets in your yeah. Dungeons. I need to make more of those. I took the the factions, and from there I decide who leads these factions. Okay, what kind of leadership are these factions based? Um, the four uh, courts aren't all necessarily um, like a, a self-governing body. You know, the spring court, they worship Titania, so they're more of a theocracy. So if you're building these different factions, fluctuate your your governments. That gives everyone something to be, you know, different about. And then you might have a few that have similar governments. That can be something that, you know, these different factions share in common. Once you start building up the who leads, what do they have in common, what are their differences, it's going to become real evident to you really quickly how these people are going to have feuds. Start building the feuds right off the bat. 
there's, you know, someone doesn't like another person in the faction. Two of these factions decided that they wanted to get together. You know, you have a Romeo and Juliet, and they went off and did their own thing, and it caused an uproar, or it made peace between them. Yeah. So, so running uh, intrigue when you put your players in the middle of that, one of the easiest ways to build the intrigue is your players get pushed, they get uh, petitioned, the salesmen are going to come up to them and say, "Why aren't you a part of this faction? If you're not a part of my faction, you know they might be hostile towards you." And you kind of want to go, John. I think we lost your video. Nope, I just. Uh... Hit my cam for okay. a second. I had to go up and turn on the light. That's ah, still not very not good. Problem. So, Lighting here is piss poor in the <laughs> later afternoons, evenings, in the winter here. Right. Hey, Hopefully that helps know? a little bit. Maybe a little. I don't know. Uh, the blinds look great. I wasn't blinded by the light. <laughs> yeah, there's no more uh, heavenly uh, spirits coming down on me now. So get your players involved in the different factions and have them slowly build up their affiliation with these different factions thanks, thanks for joining D, D dad we appreciate the engagement um so like example with the fake courts i have one player who is trying to be a double agent between the spring and the winter court um literally i i don't even like i don't even have to touch that player they make they make the intrigue as they go they do something wild or crazy every session and i'm just like okay i'm just reacting at this point now um, I have other players who slowly wanted to be introduced into the summer court, and others who kind of got themselves into it without. They didn't. They don't want to be involved in any of the courts. Yeah. And um, but they keep making these decisions that kind of alienate them, and then, you as a GM, you can slowly introduce more factions as needed, because like we said before, with throwing out the hooks, seeding these different adventures, sometimes your players just be like. Nah, like that's not for me. The uh, so far nobody's interested in the fall court. Fall court just does not appeal to anybody, and that's okay. You don't have to. I don't have to keep working on that court. I don't have to keep fleshing out those ideas. Instead, I'm going to spend my time building a different system or a different faction that is going to, to appeal to them. Yeah, I think that regardless of whether you're running an intrigue plot or not, having factions is an extremely useful thing to have in your world. Um, not only because it's it's a natural thing to exist in any world. Um, but also, it it going back to what we talked about before, it, it gives re players a reason to engage with your world. Um, and one thing I like to do with factions uh, is make pit them against each other in some way. I mean, being a faction, they have their motivations, right? And often those motivations are not going to be in you know line with what other factions will. I like to put pit my factions against each other, and then make my players choose who to ally with. Um, because it, it it gives them you know ultimatum like so to speak of they have something to gain if they don't join with this faction they don't gain this but if they don't join with this faction they don't gain this so they have to make a meaningful choice of who they ally with it's and that choice often comes with not only a reward but also a sacrifice um, mm. and I think that adding those to your your plots or your storylines are going to skyrocket the engagement of your players because it's going to get them personally invested um especially if there's mechanical rewards and sacrifices involved um Absolutely. it's going to get them personally invested in your world because it's they're not going to have any other rewards, choices huh? huh it's all about those faction rewards i mean maybe not maybe not as 
written in the game mastery guide, but it could be something as simple as they lose access to a particular place in your world that is the place to train certain skills or whatever. Like it could be something as simple as that. Like um, it's up to you as the GM to figure out what those rewards and sacrifices are going to be. Um, but I think that if you tailor them to your players, then you're going to make everything more meaningful to them. So, like, uh, recently I started working on a Blades in the Dark uh, campaign, and one of the first things I noticed was, like, what that game is almost entirely intrigue. I want to say it's at least 50% intrigue. Can be, yeah. And um, the can be. Kind of the point of the game is that it takes place in, like, one central area. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, I started making different uh, factions that would be of interest. You know, I made a, a governmenting body and a constabulary. And then from there, I was linking, what are the different trades that are in here? You know, some people form unions. Oh, a union? Bam. And I took that union and I said, that's a faction now. They do, they're miners. Maybe the all of the people who dig, they all decided to form their own union. And you just go down a list of like what happens in your city and what are the investments of the people. Yeah. Uh, so for and, I just recently designed all of that. It only took me about an hour of just like, what are the imports and exports of this city? Who kind of represents them? And then you can just go from there and just start your own factions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you know, I play a lot of, or I like Fate Core, the Fate Core system a lot. And Fate. one of the core aspects, a little pun, of Fate Core is that um, basically anything can be a character. Um, so you can assign skills and aspects and stunts and all that to basically anything. And one of the things that people, including myself, often do these to are organizations or factions. Um, and I think Blades of the Dart has a similar kind of idea with their organizations and factions. I can't recall, though. Um, but I actually do the same kind of thing in Pathfinder 2e. So I, if I want to create factions, I give those factions skill ranks, and I give those factions... Um, sometimes feats depending on how big or uh you know important the faction is um and then i actually behind the scenes mostly but there's no reason you couldn't do it in front of the scenes too um have the play out these faction roars wars with basically social encounters where I, they're they're an initiative and they're rolling skills and attacks against each other and they the outcomes of those quote-unquote wars are going to have an impact on the world um and it, it's a way to add mechanical you know cruft to something that isn't necessarily the easiest thing to play out organically um so when i i haven't done this in shifting sands uh but i'm hoping you guys eventually you know build or join organization and when you do between your two different factions because you've got the orcs and you had the the Cree. Well, those are the only two factions you know about right now. There are other ones that are also working behind the scenes to do yeah, things. And you don't need to just indunuate us with all these different factions. You kind mm -hmm. of reel it out and let us kind of find them on our own. Yeah. Um, but what I was getting at is uh, once you guys, or if you guys do take under your wing a faction or even join your other one, then it's that I will basically hand over that character sheet to you and say, hey, you know, you either have control or influence on this faction. It, you know, if you want to wage war on another faction or do have some kind of conflict with them, we can do that and we can do it in a mechanical way. 
Yes, beam, uh, Beamer's RQ brought up a really good point. Know your group. Factions can lead to fractions uh, within the party, which can lead to either infighting or force for personality dictating. We've had that issue in our group. 100% true. Um, and great idea in addition to having having a discord or a schism within the faction and if it's the players who cause it they are going to be so like proud of themselves like well I, I think what beamer is saying is it's a dangerous it's dangerous to do that because it could cause infighting in the group and depending on your group right like so you need you do need to know your group with any kind of feature you implement in your game make sure that it's something your group would work well mesh well with like jack said it could it could that schism it could create could cause great rp elements and it could great create um you know a lot of interesting outcomes from it um it, but if your if your group isn't closely knit and maybe it's a bunch of strangers then yes it could technically cause infighting that could then become a problem at the table so you have to know your group and know what they're okay with and what they're capable of um and kind of rat you will probably make mistakes and you might end up with an infighting situation um but another one of your roles as a game master is to massage over those the situations and right. keep the peace so some of the best way to keep the peace or massage those i noticed a lot of players are kind of itching to play a different class if you're playing pathfinder they're constantly releasing new paths uh class available to you so one of the methods i've noticed is that people are you know their characters uh, inclinations no longer aligns with the party that's okay talk to the player is it time to swap that person out for somebody else you should be willing to do that yeah if um, it's a character issue if it's a player issue then you might have to work a little harder to um and unfor the unfortunate reality is sometimes you will screw up and sometimes it will result in ultimately a player having or wanting to leave the game um it's it, RPGs at the end of the day, RPGs are a social setting, right? Like not not I'm talking about the game. I'm talking about like in real life when you sit down to play an RPG with someone, it's a social interaction, right? And with any social interaction, you have the the etiquette and the uh, real realities of those kind of situations, and they don't always end well. Um, and that's you know just the reality of things. So it's how intrigue works. Yeah. There's not, so there's I mean, the side. Um, I don't want to say go out of your way to cause infighting and, you know, force those situations on people. But look, we're all human and we make mistakes. But Beamers is right. You do when you're thinking of adding these sorts of elements in your game. And this is one of the reasons I said that Intrigue are one of the toughest plot lines to run, because they do have a fairly high likelihood to either not being a well fit for the party or well suit for the party or unintentionally causing these kinds of schisms. Um, so you really have to know your group and and unfortunately that role typically falls primarily if not entirely on the gm to figure that out right. so you can't always know your group um so like we had talked about before when you're starting off with those plots and you're asking your party members you're asking your players what is it that you're looking for in a game if you get everybody on board with intrigue that is one of the first things mm -hmm. and john you have a video on session zero and the contract involved in that one of those things in that plot is that you need to tell your party members hey if we're going to do intrigue all of you might not fall into the same faction. So we need to, as a group, all human people here, we all need to understand like, hey, we might be, you know, invested with each other or against each other. And that's not traditional in, say, a Dungeon Dragons, where the social contract is we all dungeon together, we all kill dragons together. Like, that is. That mm, is I mean, you can do intrigue in Dungeons and Dragons too, right? 
I, I didn't. I'm not specifying specifically dungeon. Oh, you games. mean like that kind of game? Gotcha. A traditional, a traditional dungeon crawler gotcha. is. Look, yeah. we're all working together. We all need to have a reason to. Um, we all need to have a reason to be going into these dungeons, and we all need to have reasons to stick together and not separate our party and not break into schisms. And with intrigue, you got to tell your party members straight up front, like, hey, we might have different opinions, so we all got to be adults here. You want to go ahead and read that? Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to let you finish first, because I think... I was looking for a good spot to end. And oh, okay. Like, so uh, Beamer's RQ elaborates on what they said before. He said, Part, partly both in our most recent case, half the group has secret backgrounds and some are opposing sides, while there's some personality issues as well. Sadly, the GM is fairly new and just wants everyone to get along. We're currently on hold for all games she's involved in because few players get heated with each other and ended the last session early. That's unfortunate to hear. Um, and it kind of goes back to what I said that uh, <laughs> intrigue is is a more difficult thing to run. Um, and for new GMs, it's going to be very difficult. Um, so it might not be the best advice to take tackle intrigue as a new GM, um, right. especially if you have players or players in your party who have personality issues or, or personality traits that conflict with one another. Um, it's just like with the player, if they're starting off with a class, you're going to have classes that are, you're going to recommend are easier. There's yeah. nothing, there's nothing wrong or flawed with them. It's just might be easier for a new person to use. There might be easier classes to, to play and there might be more complicated ones like martial characters versus spellcasters. And the same goes for GMs. It's going to be easier to run, more than likely, colloquially accepted. It's more likely easier to run a dungeon crawler than it is going to be to throw down, you know, political intrigue. It's going to be harder to do. In fact, I'd argue that with political intrigue, the managing the player relations at the table is probably not even the hardest thing to manage when running an intrigue. Um, I, I find it. I find that if a new GM is going to have a lot of trouble beyond just player relationships when running an intrigue uh, plot. So keep that in mind. If you are a new player, probably steer away from it. But the good news is, is that um, a lot of the, the things you learn while running non-intrigue-based plots are going to help you improve running intrigue plots. Because intrigue plots, really what they are, they're just taking all of the skills that you know, are needed to run the other plots, putting them all together, and then adding experience onto the mids, right? Mm -hmm. um, so just because you're not running intrigue plots now, you're still gaining the experience and the tools to run them in the future, which, you know, is a good thing. So, so I mean, one, I'd like to find some silver lining. Um, Beamers, you said that your group has uh, partial... Uh, some or all have secret backgrounds. I mean, props to your GM for running that. I think that that is a really cool tool. It's a shame that it, they're not seeing the current payoff, but I do want to give them props for kind of, yeah. you know, using that. That's a really cool tool. So um, if you do get a chance to talk to your GM, I hope you guys can massage that over, you know, uh, point out the, the good stuff that they've clearly done. Yeah. And maybe get some of the people who are interested in all, you know, agreeing to come back to the table. And with a little bit of positivity and some hard work, you guys might be able to get your game going again. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, definitely, you know, commend your GM where appropriate. You, what you don't want is them to be demoralized to the point where they just give up with the hobby or even the game and don't want to play anymore. Um, I think that, Beamers, it sounds like you have a um, 
a fairly charismatic personality. So y you might help your GM by, uh, you know, approaching some of these players who have personality issues or whatever, uh, or maybe just fighting with one another and try to massage it over in their place um, so that you guys can get back to the table and start playing the game and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... Oh, it's an AP? Okay. So, Beamer's argues has good points. It's an AP that's not all intrigue, but starts with some factions in the first book to set up the later stuff. Us versus the universe. Okay. Um, in that case, I, I don't know exactly what AP you're referring to, and I don't have much experience running Pathfinder 2E APs, like, like officially published ones. Um, but I would, as advice to your GM, I would see if there's a way, knowing now that there are issues with factions and whatnot i would see if there's a way to adjust that ap to kind of oh starfinder okay mm -hmm. i would see if there's ways to uh, adjust that ap to either remove the infactions entirely or make them less important uh until everyone at the table feels more comfortable partaking in those kinds of activities uh, that may not be possible depending on how the ap is written but i would look at it that way right i, I would say give the give the option for the gm to uh ameliorate the difference between the two factions. Um, I think uh, the players who are on one side and the other side kind of get them all at the table and you know, kind of Star Trek that out like, meet, broker some peace I think that's completely doable right there or, yeah. you know, it's your, the quest for the parties to kind of get those two factions to, you know, to have a resolution. But I think, John I think we're ready to uh, wrap this up Okay Um one more thing I wanted to mention on this, though, is that, as I mentioned earlier, RPGs are a social setting or a social situation, right? Um, and in the in there will undoubtedly be a time, especially the close, ironically, actually, the closer you all get as as humans, right, in your relationships with one another, the more likely it will be that um, there will be social conflicts with one another, like as people. Uh, I know Jack and I argue a lot about various things. I, I also we within our Discord, like our our game Discord, not the Art of Game Master Discord. We have a separate Discord for like our Tiger games. Um, we argue with one another all the time, but we know that you know that's just none of us take. At least I don't think anyone takes especially offense to it. I'm sure we get heated in the moment, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all human. We all know we make mistakes, and we're free freely admit when we do, and. Even even if it if the conversation or the discussion or the debate or whatever leaves off in a at a bad note, at, we come back the next day and we're like, okay, whatever, you know, you know, whatever, we're cool now, you know, like that's just part of being human and you know living in a society and that people are going to disagree on things and sometimes those disagreements do get heated, but we can't let it get to our heads and our hearts and we need to realize that hey, we're all friends here, like we're not out to get one another, at least like. I would hope that everyone at your party is not out to get one another. <laughs> so uh, keep that in mind. You know, things will get heated uh, inevitably, but you're all friends at the end of the day. You'll you'll get over it. You'll have you know a fun. So that's my uh, my wise okay, words of advice for the day. <laughs> but yeah, so closing thoughts, um... guys. Thanks for joining us in the chat today. Don't forget to like sub. If you guys are watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe. We do have this. Uh, John has been importing this on his time, importing it to Spotify. So if you're looking for something to listen to 
we're kind of low on the uh, visuals, mostly audio. So check us out on Spotify. Beamers like I, like, I like subs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I'm actually going to get one after this. There's <laughs> not the sub that they're talking about. Um, also, we are uh, off Halloween, as a reminder. Um, as I'm sure most of us, you know, even though chat would be busy anyway, so it's, there's really not much point in doing it on Halloween. Um, but next week, we are doing, what was our Book of the Dead? Uh, Undead? How to... How to bring your dead yes, to life. That's right. How to bring your dead to life. I give full credit to that to Jack. It was a clever, uh, clever. It's a lively, it's a lively pun. That. I'd say it's a graveyard smash. Uh, <laughs> right oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, we're going to be doing that next week. Uh, it's kind of like a pre prelude to Halloween. So that'll be fun. Um, we will be up on YouTube the next couple days. Uh, might be a little later this time, depending on how I'm feeling. I'm probably not going to work on it tonight like I usually do, just because I'm not feeling super hot. Um, so depending on how I feel tomorrow, maybe I'll get it up then. Um, what else we got? Shifting Sands, the West Marches game we've talked about throughout this episode, is open to anyone. Uh, it should be a community server, so I think you can actually search it on Discord. But if not, the link will be in the description of the YouTube video. And I know we mentioned it last time, and I forgot. We need to put the link in the Twitch bio as well for those who don't watch us on youtube we'll, we'll add that in there as well otherwise you guys can find us on discord we're also on uh if you click any of our links below we're on twitter instagram uh reddit what else do we need um what else i think that's all the social medias we're on um we do want to do a better job of engaging with instagram i feel like we're slacking in that regard um we're working on it yeah we're working on it but uh i think that's all the social medias so yeah um until next time Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us, guys.